Awesome. So uh, if you're here for the first time, we, again, just want to tell you how grateful we are and how honored we are that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Uh, it is our pleasure and great, with great joy we welcome you here. Uh, my name is Trub Prater. I'm lead pastor here. And we are honored to have you. And you're coming at a really great time because we are about to start something brand new next week. And I've kind of been kind of not teasing it, just kind of putting it out there over the past few weeks. We had just finished this sort of two-year journey through the book of Acts. We wrapped that up at the end of the fall and kind of done some different stuff uh, over Christmas and, and getting us through January. And we're going to begin this new preaching adventure. And we're going to actually begin a process of going through the gospel of John starting next week. And I've actually never in all of my life preached through one of the gospel. I've done a lot of other books and a lot of other things like that, but I've never preached the gospel. And so I'm really excited about it because part of the way that John is structured and put together doesn't just point us to a historical reference of who Jesus was, but it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that I can do as a teacher or as a preacher, it's to point people to the person of Jesus Christ. It's my entire existence is to point you to God's word and the person of Christ. And so I'm excited about this because John's entire gospel is written so that people might know eternal life. John 17, three says this, now this is eternal life that they may know you, Jesus, right? And they may know you, the one true God. And our whole goal as a church is that you might be introduced into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and fall in love with his word. And so uh, I don't know how long it's going to take us. It's only 21 chapters. That's like seven shorter than Acts. So we should be in in good shape. But we're going to start next week. So if you're interested in kind of catching the first part of that, kind of as we lay out the book and the gospel and the person and all that kind of stuff, make sure you're here next week. Now, before then, and and kind of leading up to then, we've been looking at both the book of James and the book of 1 Peter this month, and we've been exploring things that are really at war within us. We've talked about wisdom. We've talked about words. We've talked about mindsets or things that, that we know that God is calling us and pulling us to, yet we know that the world or culture, the enemy is, is warring against in our soul. And we're actually going to look at something very similar on that same trajectory as we stay in the book of First Peter um, this morning. And it's a really interesting account, this letter to First Peter, because he is writing to a massive group of believers. He's not writing to a certain town like the Ephesians or the people in Ephesus or Corinth or wherever. He's writing to a huge group of people that are scattered all over Asia Minor. And Asia Minor covers the entire kind of region, which would now be Turkey and a little bit beyond. It's a massive area between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and it covers all kinds of huge providence. And the idea there is that there are Christians that Paul had met along his three missionary journeys that are now have either returned to their towns or they were towns that Paul had visited. And there are pockets of Christianity all over this massive region. And so Peter wrote a letter to them. Now, how do you write a letter to an incredibly large area and region? Well, the way the Bible works or the way the letters in Scripture works is they would be written and they would be delivered to a church and that church, small huddled together group of people would read it, they would soak it in and then they would share it. Someone would walk it or take it to the next town over or to where the other group of believers was or to the other city and that letter made its way around and those teachings were so deeply vital, Right? As I mentioned last week, there are three things we kind of have to keep in mind, and I'll just touch on them real quick, about how things were, were really, really different then, right? And the first one was this, persecution was incredibly real. Most of us will never face it, never have to deal with it, but persecution in the New Testament was real. There were people that were facing death for their belief in Jesus Christ. You woke up every day saying, today could be the day that I die because I profess to be a, fa- a faithful follower of Christ. Then it was, the second thing was that it's not a Christian culture. 
I mean, we know that, but it's really hard for us to imagine that because we live in Oklahoma City where our culture is predominantly Christian. And if not, you know, at least kind of in a supportive sense, no one kind of shuns you for going to church, right? A lot of the things that we have in our sort of culture are built around Bible-believing, church-going things. There's 1,668 or 63 churches in this city, right? We live in a Christian culture, whether we like it or not. Whether we feel like morally that's true or not, the reality is that's just where we are. That culture was not Christian. There were very few Christians. There were, these were all first century, first generation Christians. Your great grandmother was not a believer. You were a believer because either you met Paul or somebody who had heard Paul, right? Or one of the apostles came and they told you about Jesus and you were probably the first in your whole family. So there weren't a lot of other believers around. There were very few people. In fact, in a, you know, in a whole city, there may be five or six believers in the entire city. So it wasn't a Christian culture. And also the church was very different, right? We know this. The church doesn't look like it does here. It's not on every corner. It doesn't have a building. It doesn't have programs and games and things and Nintendos and stuff for the kids. Is there still a such thing as a Nintendo? Maybe not. Uh, Xboxes, you know, whatever, you know. There's no, those things weren't, they weren't there. There weren't the programs. It was a gathering of people. The church was the Greek word, the ekklesia, which means the gathering or the assembly of believers. So wherever they were, the church was right? Sometimes they would be huddled together underground. Sometimes they would be in somebody's home. The church was the movement and gathering of people. And it's really important to understand this because we can't understand scripture apart from its context. It's part of our giant struggle in our Christian culture is that we want to lift and take scripture out of its context, out of its history, out of its places, and apply single little verses to our lives that we like and forget the ones that we don't like. And it's a tragedy because we are called to understand the breadth and the scope of Scripture, and don't, we don't get to pick and choose. We have to understand it, live it, apply it. And so I want you to hear that going in. And we're going to be paying special attention to that first piece um, this morning, that piece of the idea of persecution or suffering is real. Now, in Asia Minor at the time, right, persecution was pretty widespread. It wasn't quite as prevalent as what was happening in the Roman Empire, where Nero was beginning to take over and people were being thrown into gladiatorial rings and things like that, but it was sweeping that way. And persecution was a very real part of life. And not just persecution from governments, but persecution from families. When you gave your life to Christ, a lot of times you were ostracized, you were pushed out, you were blackballed, if you will, from culture, from events, from family gatherings. There was a very real element of suffering that happened when you gave your life to Jesus. And the letter of 1 Peter is written addressing a lot of things that Christians were facing, marriage and service and all this kind of stuff. But there's a huge portion of that letter that is addressing how to live when I'm suffering, when I'm hurting, when I'm broken? How do I still draw breath? And the believers in Asia Minor were living this. And, and make the matters worse, a lot of them were living in real and abject poverty, right? Famine in those days was an incredibly real thing. And so a lot of the believers scattered around were living in very real poverty. They were living in a place of wondering how they were going to feed their family. Not poverty like, oh, we've only got one, you know, chariot or whatever, but like wow, poverty, like how am I going to go and get food for my children. And so Peter's writing into the middle of this context, suffering and pain and hurt, and it's very real. So the words that he's going to share with us today, there's about four things we'll look at, are, are spoken into the middle of that, and we have to understand that. 
Now, most of us probably aren't living in that kind of context of hurt and suffering, but for the most part, we all have pain, hurt, and suffering that are happening in our lives, whether it's neglect from family or it's just living in mediocrity or whether it's I wonder why things keep happening to me or whatever it is. At some point in time, whether it's today or this week or this month or this season in life, we will live and deal with real hurt, losing something that we love, care for, wondering why and asking God a whole lot of questions. It's a very real part of the Christian experience in the Christian life and life in general. And so we're going to read these verses in that context. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, I probably have got about six weeks worth of stuff we're going to do this morning, so hang on. Um, Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. Um, We love you. We thank you that you are real and that you are true and that you are right and that you are noble and that you are good. And God, we confess, myself and everyone in this room, God, we confess that we don't deserve your love and grace. We are in broken harmony with you. The sin in our life is real. We choose ourselves over you every day. God, we choose ourselves over people. We make choices that are in direct opposition of what you would have for us. We don't trust you. We fail to give you our life. God, we fail to love you. We sin. Yet in your incredible, beautiful grace, you do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And God, we are grateful this morning that you love us anyway. So Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly, so instruct our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just invite God, if you will, or ask God to just take over your heart and teach you something this morning. I don't know what you need to hear. God knows what you need to hear. Ask him to speak directly to you. Lord, I know that you speak through your word very clearly, and we want you to speak to our hearts. Take a moment and just pray for somebody else. We do this each week. Pray for somebody that God might speak directly to their heart this morning. So Lord, we ask that you would hear our heart and our cry as we open your word and we begin to explore it together. We ask this in Jesus perfect and holy and redeemed name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 5, the very end of the letter, Peter takes a a little bit of a turn and he writes a section to all the leaders, the elders, and he begins to encourage them on how to lead and shepherd God's flock. And the first few verses of chapter 5 are written directly to the leaders and overseers of the church, right? Wherever that particular gathering may be, but also the big church, those that have been installed as leaders and shepherds. And then in about verse 4 or 5, he invites the whole context of believers back into the conversation. And he basically says that all of these things, right, they're all, I'm including everyone in now what I'm getting ready to say. And we're going to pick up as he's bringing everybody back into this teaching that he's been sharing with these elders. And this is what he says. We're going to be in verse 6 and go down through 11. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, 
standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to this eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So, Peter starts by kind of instructing these elders on how to lead and shepherd well. And then he basically says, I want everyone to pay attention now to what I'm about to say. And he quotes from Proverbs 34 and essentially says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6 he says, therefore humble yourselves. Or humble yourselves therefore attaching it to that little piece of quotes he had right above that. The first thing that Peter instructs believers to do, spread out all over Asia Minor, dealing in the middle of real suffering, real hurt, real pain, real questions, real wonderings, is to say, humble yourself. Now, at first glance, you might think that sounds a little odd, right? I mean, here are people that are wondering where their next meal is going to come from, or that maybe they're going to be arrested for their faith in Christ, or they've watched someone they know and love and care about taken, beaten, tortured. They are literally at the end of their rope, nothing left, wondering every day if this is going to be the last day that I draw breath, and Peter just told me to humble myself. It can't get any more humbling for me, right? In fact, when most of us are in places of suffering or hurt or struggle or fear or failure or whatever, humility is on the top of the list of things that we think we're dealing with, right? Because I have been removed or everything has been removed from me. But humility and pride are really interesting things. And pride manifests itself in our lives in very different ways than just the I'm great and you're not, right? Or I have and I deserve and you don't. Pride often manifests itself in our life when we do things like what I call the why me set of questions. And the why me set of questions are rooted in the why is this happening to me? I'm a really good person. I've worked really hard. God, why do this set of circumstances continue to happen to me? God, why does everybody else seem to get all the things that they want? And I am left over here saying, where is mine? Why does so-and-so's family never face any struggle and mine faces struggle every single day? That why me set of questions is actually deeply rooted in pride. It's deeply rooted in me. And at first glance, what, what Peter is reminding people that in the middle of their sufferings, humility begins with understanding that it's not about you. Humility begins with an understanding of who God truly is. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but this understanding of who God truly is is central to our Christian life and experience. And if there's any doctrine or theology the church has done away with the most in all of our culture, it's the doctrine of the holiness of God, right? We, we created this picture of Jesus that is palatable for our sort of lives. He is our best friend, our homeboy, our person, our man upstairs, our guy, our friend. This is the God we talk about. But if you read scripture, not just the Old Testament, but New Testament too, God is addressed in really sobering, holy, powerful terms. The judge of all nations, the great I am. Isaiah says that at the, the sound of his voice, nations scatter. People in scripture looked upon God. Their hair went white, they went blind, and even dropped dead. 
Scripture continually teaches about the discontinuity between the holiness and majestic nature of God and sinful humanity. That there is this massive disconnect between me and my sinful brokenness and mighty, holy, majestic, perfect, wondrous God who holds all things together with his breath. It is not a God to be taken lightly, trifled with, or high-fived. But God is majestic and wondrous, wondrous and breathed life into things. And he holds things into place and into movement. The reason humility begins there is because when I realize and begin to understand who God truly is in light of who I am, my why me's turn into thank you Jesus responses. Because when I realize that the only reason I draw breath in the morning is because God in all of his majestic wonder has given me that ability. That the only reason I have anything that I even have at all is because God is good. And God is in control. And what Peter is saying is that even in the middle of struggle and sin, or struggle and hurt and circumstance and stuff and life and brokenness, when we recognize who God is in comparison to who we're not, the response is humility. God, I don't deserve even what you've given me. You are perfect, and I am a sinful mess. Every day I wake up, and I choose me. Even this morning, I wake up, and I choose myself. My comfort, my desires, my longings, my things, my way of life. Over you. You are holy, and I am not. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, right? Therefore, and then he says, under God's mighty hand. He will lift you up in due time, right? So verse six, he says, when we begin to humble ourselves, to come to that place where I recognize that God and all of his majestic holiness and me and all my sort of broken sinfulness, right? The very fact that I draw breath and even get to open my eyes is a gift from God. When I realize that, and I realize that I am under his mighty hand. Now think about that imagery for just a moment. Has there ever been a more beautiful image of protection, right? Than under God's mighty hand. That all of your worries, cares, struggles, hurts, and failures, all of that, all of the biggest comfort fears that you have are shadowed under just the hand of God. And Peter says, therefore, under God's mighty hand. In other words, God is a protecting God. Under his hand, right? He will lift you up. So here we are, this imagery of, of suffering, suffering and brokenness. And I'm humbling myself and God is protecting me. And he will do what I cannot do for myself. In other words, I can't get up, lift myself up out of this stuff, pick myself up by the bootstraps and do for myself what it's going to take to get to God. It's an impossibility. So God does what I can't do for myself and he lifts me up. If you've ever been through hurt, suffering, pain, struggle, whatever it is, you can't will yourself out of it. You can't. Scripture teaches that God will restore and lift up. But Peter attaches something to that verse that none of us want to actually hear when we are hurting. 
You see it there at the end of verse 6? That he will lift you up in due time. That's a painful caveat. Because see, we want God to step in and when we cry out to him, when we humble ourselves and we say, God, I recognize that you are everything that I'm not and I need you. Cover me with your hand and lift me up. We mean right now. Right now. I said it. I prayed it. I need it to happen at this moment. And what Peter says is God will protect you and he will lift you up in due time. In other words, God is always at work. He is moving and his timing is extremely different than yours. Your timing is built on your comfort and your desire for relief. God's timing is built on his overall redemptive plan for humanity and his desire for you to grow in holiness. Those are two incredibly different things. You want relief. God wants you to grow. You want to be out of discomfort and God is redeeming your heart to maturity in him. In the middle of struggle, fear, questions, the why me's, God's answer is never or almost never just to give you instant relief. We live in a world of instants, right? Microwaves, instant rice, whatever it is. We want it now. If it doesn't happen now, we don't want it anymore. How crazy is to think we apply that to our theology. God, I prayed it and you didn't do it. God, I cried out and you didn't come. Did he not? His mighty hand will restore you in due time. Humble yourself. The second thing that, that Peter says on, on these little four things is he says to be self-controlled and alert. Now, this actually goes a little bit hand-in-hand with what we talked about last week. If you remember, you were here, verse uh, chapter 4, Peter's telling these believers that the end is near. He says, look, Jesus is coming back. The end is near. There is a time where God will restore all things, and he will literally judge humanity. Jesus will return. And he tells those believers to be self-controlled so that they can pray. Have a clear mindset and be self-controlled so that you can pray. And we talked about that last week. This actually goes with that. Be alert and self-controlled. In other words, in the moments of chaos, when things are drawing to its sort of peak, when life seems to be funneling out of control, or when life seems to be with these overwhelming struggles and fears and hurts and stuff and pounding and pounding and pounding, calm down. Be alert, clear-minded, self-controlled. Chapter 4, pray. But he gives a little bit different instruction here. Why be self-controlled and alert? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In our moments of weakness, in our moments of pain and struggle and fear and hurt, or just our moments of chaos or wondering if God is real or any of those things, Peter says, in those moments... You have to be aware that the enemy is actively pursuing your life. Now, like I said about holiness, that probably the one theology doctrine we have done away with in our Christian sort of subculture is this picture of the holiness of God, right? We, we really love and romanticize the grace and the love of Jesus like he's a, some kind of superhero with super love, but we ignore the awe-inspiring holiness. Well, this doctrine of sin 
is very similar to that. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about sin and death and evil and Satan and the devil. Because that doesn't bring people into our buildings. We like to talk about how everything's going to be great and we can high-five each other and every day is going to be a Friday and you can be the best that you will ever be if you just tap into the inner goodness because it sells books and fills auditoriums. But Scripture teaches that sin and death and evil and the devil are incredibly real and a theology that constructs itself around Scripture and ignores the reality of the devil and Satan is not only dangerous, it's a lie. There is a spiritual war that is being waged over your life. John 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to do everything in his power to steal your joy, your effectiveness, your heart, to destroy every ounce of hope that you have. And while the Bible tells us very clearly that Satan has no ability to steal your eternal salvation, he can destroy your gospel effectiveness and your heart of hope. And he will do everything in his power. And make, understand these words. And in your moments of suffering and hurt and questions and fear, those are the front lines for the spiritual battle over your life. Because Satan will attack you at those moments when you are weak and he will tell you things that you want to hear. And sometimes the things you don't. God's forgotten about you. Look at everybody else. God doesn't ever show up when you ask him to. He's not going to protect you. These are lies, and we begin to believe them. You're not worthy. So why try? So Peter says, be alert and self-controlled. Why? Because the enemy who is very real and the spiritual war that is waging over your life is happening now and he prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour. When we give the enemy that foothold in our life, we are giving him over pretty much everything. Our world, our hope, our life, and he will devour it literally devour it. I want you to understand that there is a spiritual war that is being waged over you and a lot of the things that you've bought into are lies and you've turned them into truth. And the enemy, he's feeding on it. So Peter says, be self-controlled and alert because the devil who is incredibly real wants you. And he will trick you, and he is a liar and a thief, and he will devour you. And most of us are caught up in that place that we don't want to admit that we have given our heart to lies of Satan. And while he can't take you when you've given your life to Christ, he can't take you for eternity, he can certainly wreak havoc on your, wreak havoc on your life here. So res- then he goes on to say the third thing, resist him, right? So humble yourself. Uh, oh, sorry, we missed the one in the middle. We're going to jump back. So he says this, he says, humble yourself, right? Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he will lift you up because the devil rolls or roars around like a roaring lion. Verse seven, we'll jump back up real quick. Cast all of your anxiety and cares upon him. So the one in the middle there, cast all of your anxiety and cares upon him. I love this imagery here because worry and anxiety 
fear and suffering and hurt, they're, they're on the front lines of this place in our life. And most of us live in that place where we want to trust God, but we really just don't know how because the worry, anxiety, and fear has seized part of our hearts. And what Peter says is that you are called, that I am called to cast my worry and anxiety and fear upon Jesus. Now, the word cast upon is actually a really interesting Greek word because it actually has a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. The literal meaning is like what happens in Luke 19, where Jesus is about to ride the baby donkey into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the disciples go and get it. And the word there is the same one that says, cast, they cast their cloaks on the back of this donkey so that Jesus could ride on it. So they took the cloaks off their back, and they literally threw them on the back of this donkey, and Jesus climbed on. Okay, that's the, the literal meaning of cast upon. It also has a figurative meaning like it's used here, which is to cast all of your worries or anxieties upon Jesus. And I love this imagery because if you think about it, it's actually asking us to do a couple of really specific things. He's telling us to cast all of our worries and anxieties upon Jesus. And by doing that, we literally have to let them go. So the literal definition, if you will, is if I'm going to take my cloak and throw it on the back of that donkey, I have to let it go. I can't put it on the donkey and wear it at the same time. That's an impossibility. I can't have a rock in my hand and cast it and keep it in my hand. It's got to leave. So what Peter's saying is that when we cast our anxieties and worries upon the Lord, we have to absolutely let them go. But most of us cast an anxiety or a worry and yet still hang on to it with everything we have and pretend that we gave it to God. Because the truth is it centers around control. I'm willing to trust the Lord with some things, but just not fully. And so we hang on to worry and anxiety, right? We hold on to it instead of giving it completely over and saying, I'm not going to let this rob me or steal from me or torment me any longer. Because Jesus, you want it. And the second thing that Peter says in there, he says to cast all of your anxieties and worries, which is what I'm horrible at. I will cast the ones that I know I really don't need, but I hang on to the ones that are the hardest. Because I don't know how to live without them. And that sounds funny, but it's just true. We always sort of, when it comes to control and stuff, we hold on to the things that we know are destroying us because we've come to live with them. We've come to be comfortable with them, even though we know they're killing us, those fears and those things and those, what will God make me do or call me to or all those kind of things, we still just hang on to them. But the call from Peter is to cast all of your anxieties or worries upon Jesus. And this is the best part of that whole verse. Because he cares for you. I love that. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture because in the middle of my anxiety and worry are the questions, God, do you even care? I mean, at least that's what goes on in my heart. I've asked you to take this away. God, you haven't. God, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm wondering if you're even here. I'm trying to draw breath, but I, I don't sense you anywhere. And yet Peter invites us to cast our worries and anxiety on Jesus, not because he can just carry him because he's God, but because he answers my question, which is, God, do you care for me? And the answer is, absolutely. That's why I want to carry your stuff. 
So we're called to this sort of place of humility, right? To we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. He will lift us up in due time. And we take all of our anxieties and our worries and we cast them upon Jesus. We are self-controlled and alert because the enemy is very real. And those lines of worry and suffering, anxiety, they're the front lines for the spiritual battle that is being waged over our life. And that last one that I just about hit on a second ago was that we are called to resist the devil. Resist him. So once we recognize that real war going on, we resist him, stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. James 4, 7 puts it this way. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if spiritual warfare is real and worry and anxiety and pain and suffering are the front lines of this battle that is being waged over my life and God is holy and majestic and I deserve nothing and I humble myself and he protects me and he promises to lift me up. But in that state of weakness and struggle, the enemy is attacking my life with everything that he is. How do I actively live in that? And Peter says, you resist it. You resist him. And James says, you resist him and he will flee from you. And Peter says, you resist him by standing firm in the faith. This goes into what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember what a couple of weeks ago we were talking about wisdom, two kinds of wisdom? There's wisdom that's from heaven that is, first of all, peaceful and pure and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit. And then there's the, the wisdom that's from the enemy that's a lie, right? There's a true and a lie. And I told you that, that, that true wisdom is being able to put into place or practice and apply what I already know to be true. So real wisdom is being able to live what I know to be true. And spiritually speaking, real wisdom is the ability to live and apply what I know to be true about God. Standing firm in the faith is this, that I'm going to stand on the promises that I know to be true about God even when my life feels like it's coming unglued, even when things are falling apart, struggling, and I've got more questions than I do answers. I will stand firm in the promises that God has made me because I know them to be true. Wisdom, standing firm in the faith, means I'm going to anchor my life into the truth of Scripture, even when my life is full of questions. I want to anchor myself to what is true and what is right, and I want to resist the enemy who is lying to my soul. And he is telling me God has forgotten me. And he is telling me that I'm not wanted. He is telling me that I'm worthless, that I'm not worth fighting for, dying for, or living for. He is telling me that this will never get better, that everything is always going to be full of stress and anxiety and hurt. And he is a liar. And I'm going to put my feet into scripture and I'm going to say, God promises never to leave me nor forsake me and that he will lift me up. And God is always and forever at work. And I will anchor my life to that truth. And we say those things even when there's part of our souls that is crying for something different because I am standing firm in what I believe to be true in Scripture even when my heart is echoing fear. I'm going to not let the enemy lie to me anymore. I am not going to let him tell me the worthless things about me. I'm not going to let him tell me that it's not going to get any better. I'm not going to let him tell me that anxiety and worry are my friends for life. We resist the devil, all right? Stand firm in the faith. And then kind of lastly, he says this. He says, and you know, 
right? You know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is incredibly comforting, especially for that early believer, right? Because one of the sort of seldom talked about pieces of struggling and hurt or fear or failure or anxiety or, or just loss or longing is, it's, is loneliness. We just feel like nobody else is going through this. If anybody's ever walked through a period of crisis of belief, deep loss, anxiety, fear, or just wondering if all this God stuff is even real, it's a lonely place to be because we don't talk about it out loud, right? Our churches aren't safe places to come in and air our fears and grievances and struggles and wonderings and questions. Like who wants to raise their hand right now and go, hey, I got a question. I'm not sure I even believe that God is real. Anybody else got that? I mean, the reality is, is that it's not a safe place for us. And so most of us bury that thought. What Peter says is this, you are not alone. You're not alone. Brothers and sisters throughout the world are going through what you're going through. So take heart. Look, there are people in this room that have very real questions. You're not alone. There are people in this room that have lost people that they love dearly, and you are not alone. There are people in this this room that feel seized by anxiety to the point where sometimes they don't want to get out of bed. You are not alone. There are people in this room that are seized by worry. Will this ever get any better? You are not alone. There are people in this room that are stuck in the middle of mediocrity and that have lived for years in the middle of this Christian place where there just seems to be nothing one way or the other, and I do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. You are not alone. How comforting those words are. Others are suffering and struggling and fighting, and these words are true. Humble yourself. Cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Resist the enemy. You are not alone. And then Peter wraps everything up with this, and I'll just finish it with this. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power and glory forever. There's there's six weeks worth of stuff in here, but listen, he says, and the God of all grace who called you, God called you. He spoke life into you. He brought you into a relationship with him. John 6, tells you that, that if you know Jesus, it's because the Father drew you. You didn't discover him on your own. God is not the result of our mental journey. I have told you this example before many a time. I was in seminary and I had a philosophical theology professor that was, I mean, he was out there. But one of the things that he said that stuck with me for my entire life was he said this. He said, I've spent my entire life studying all the greatest minds. You've got a PhD in this and a degree in this. I've read everything there is to read philosophically that's out there about God, about humanity, about people. And I've come to two absolute truths in my heart. One, there is a God. And two, my rational mind didn't get me there. And what he's saying is that God is not the end of our mental journey. God had to show himself to me for me to see him. Importance of that is that God has called you and the God that's called you 
won't forget you. The God as it brought you, the God that drew you as a teenager into a relationship with her, the God that, that called you when, you when you walked that aisle at church or that, that showed you himself, that God will not abandon you or leave you. God has called you. And he's telling that to these believers. Even though you are suffering, God has called you, right? And he's called you to his eternal glory, a time where he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hurt, no more sadness. There is an eternal glory that is bigger than everything this world says it has to offer. He's called you. After you have suffered a little while, think about that for a moment. No one gets through this life unscathed. No one. Every single one of us will suffer We'll hurt, we'll walk through loss, we'll walk through worry, anxiety, fear, questions, wonderings. No one gets through. After you have suffered, meaning we will all suffer, this life is hard. There are questions that we have that go unanswered. There is losses that will never go away. There are things that we will never have a clear picture as to why. But after we have suffered for a little while, with, with himself, right, God himself will restore you. In other words, God will do what you can't do for yourself. He will restore you, and he will make you strong and firm and steadfast. He doesn't say God's going to make it all go away. He doesn't say that God's going to give you all the answers to every question you have. He doesn't say that God's going to tidy up the ends and, and put a bow on it and show you why you had to walk through what you walked through for the past year and a half or two months or five years or whatever. He just says that, that God will restore you and he will make you strong and firm and steadfast. In other words, the things that we walk through, God is molding and shaping the depth of our character and our maturity in Christ. Strong and firm and steadfast. Not happy, questions answered, understanding. There's a big difference. We want God to come in and fix it and relieve it. And God in all of his holiness at work for the redemptive picture of mankind wants us mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ does not mean we have every answer. It does not mean we understand everything. But it means that we understand that God who is in control of all things. My prayer has shifted as I've read these things to no longer God take away from me, God answer me, God show me, but to God restore me and make me strong, firm, and steadfast. I don't care if I ever get an answer. I just want to be strong, firm, and steadfast because you have built me up and restored me. This becomes the ultimate call of someone that follows Jesus, to go from here, where God, you owe me answers, to God, I want you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it is timeless. And I thank you, God, that we don't have to sugarcoat things to make ourselves feel better. You are I mean, you are God, and you are holy, and you are majestic, and you are mighty, and you call us to drop the why me life that says, God, I deserve better. To humble ourselves before you and say, God, the very fact that I woke up today and drew breath was a gift from you. And I want to take my worry and anxiety and I want to give it to you. I don't want it anymore. I can't handle it anymore. I'm casting it on you like that cloak. I am literally throwing it away. I do not want to ever wear it anymore because my anxieties and my worries, they weigh heavy on me like a garment. And God, I give them to you. I'm going to be self-controlled and alert. 
because I know the enemy, he is waging war on my life, in my mind. He is waiting to devour me. I'm going to resist him. I'm going to believe the truths that I know about you and I'm going to apply them in my life and I'm no longer going to let them just be things. But you promised to protect me with your mighty hand. God, I'm going to believe that. You promised that one day you will restore me. God, I'm going to believe that. God, you promised you never will leave me or forsake me. God, I'm, I'm going to believe that. God, you promise that you will take care of my needs. God, I am going to believe that. God, you call me beloved and told me I'm worth dying for. God, I'm going to believe that. And in the middle of all that, I know that you called me and I'm not alone. I know that you have whispered life to me and drawn me out of my place and that I am nothing without you. And then even in my suffering, even in my questions, even in my fears, I am not alone. You will restore me and you will make me strong, firm, and steadfast. And God, I will anchor my life in that hope. So Lord, hear my prayer, my personal prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close our time.